Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is our 143rd consecutive weekly episode. This time, it will be our second in a new sequence that's titled Ruminations. By ruminations, I mean, well, honestly, whatever comes into my head once I begin the session. It is not only not scripted, it isn't even preconceived. It isn't outlined, it is spontaneous. So, okay, here we go. And now I take a minute, which we'll erase from the tape, to decide what to say. Something that's been on my mind is effectiveness. In various pursuits bearing on winning social change. We have so many articles being written. We have so much writing being done. We have so much publishing occurring. What does it suggest about our effectiveness? When I look at the total of manuscripts and and essays and also books that are being produced, in the first place, it seems to me to be really a jump upward from the past. I'm not sure that's true in one sense. I'm sure it's true in another sense. The sense in which I'm not sure it's true is that there's actually more stuff being written. The sense in which I'm sure it is true is that there's more stuff that is flowing before our eyes. Part of the reason for that, I think, is if you go back far enough, and I go back way far, if you go back far enough, it used to be the case that when you wrote, a constituency saw your writing. So in other words, if you wrote and you published in a local newspaper or you published in uh, something of that sort, the constituency of that outlet saw your material. But except for some rare exceptions, it didn't go further than that. So maybe, uh, like in the early days, I might have published an article in what was called the Old Mole, the radical newspaper in the Cambridge-Boston area. Or I might even have published it in my campus newspaper. And that would be it. You know, maybe if Chomsky published something in the Old Mole, it would get picked up and slowly but surely percolate its way into other audiences. But that was basically the situation. Nowadays, I see material, and admittedly, I do look at more than most people because I curate for the site called Zenet. But I see material from all over the damn world. I see material every day that is numbered not in handfuls, but in dozens of essays that are appearing daily. And you have to wonder, are people really reading all that? Are people really not just reading it, which is one level of accomplishment, I suppose, for the, the effort that goes into writing something, but are they then doing something with it? Now, you can tell me that people are forwarding the link on their Facebook page or their Twitter account or what have you, uh, but what I mean is, are they reading it, thinking about it, discussing it with other folks? Is what's being written causing changes in what's being thought by large numbers of people. In particular, is what's being written on the left causing changes in thought of large numbers of people on the left? I don't know, but I am very skeptical. I'm very doubtful that that's what's occurring. It seems to me that much of what's being written isn't being read at all, and that some of it is being read, but sort of in that atomized way that we talk about when we talk about 
you know, movements being atomized. It's being read by individuals, and that's the end of it. And there may be a number of individuals who read it, but they're scattered all over the place, and they're not particularly talking to each other about that thing that they read. And to me, this is a big problem. To me, this means that a certain amount of the effort and the energy that's being produced by, that's, being, that's coming forth from people of goodwill with left politics, is not very effective. Okay, suppose we turn to a different aspect, and suppose we turn to activism and actions and organizing. I fear that the same thing may be true. We might not be getting enough bang for the buck. We might not be sort of investing our energies and our time in ways that have sustained impact. It's not that they don't have impact at all, clearly. It's not that they don't, that they're unimportant, clearly. That's not the case. But what I'm questioning is whether they are as effective as they might be. And so what emerges from this, this fear, this rumination, this concern about, about our efforts is, well, what would be effective? What is sort of the definition of left effectiveness? And here, I think that the definition isn't being correct. I think that the definition isn't the pile of action or activity or writing being big. I think that we have to measure effectiveness not even by immediate impact, but about impact over time. Does it have the immediate effect that it was seeking, and does it somehow contribute to the emergence of more insight, awareness, commitment, activism over time? That should be, I think, our criteria of effectiveness. And it doesn't just apply to now. This isn't an old codger saying, oh, you people aren't doing it well. Not at all. When I look back at the past, at when I was a young fellow and was in the midst of, what, 60s activism, and I ask myself, were we effective? Well, it's troubling to me that I have to admit that the answer to that question is not nearly as much as we could have and should have been. I think that's the case. Why do I say that? Well, there's one easy indicator. It's, what, 50, 60 years later, and we just had Trump. Clearly, something went wrong. Clearly, the sum total of our efforts, and they were large and multitudinous even, courageous, and often correct, in fact, almost always correct in the sense of picking out real targets, in the sense of having real uh, warranted complaints and aims, and in the sense of having uh, uh, commitment, uh, courage. But were they correct? Were they not correct? Were they effective in the sense of not only short-term disruption, short-term arousal, short-term accurate formulations, but in the sense of generating year upon year more, year upon year greater. 
Uh, one way to think about this is uh, that comes to mind is is I remember uh, campaigns by Jesse Jackson um, uh, running for president and the Rainbow Coalition. All very good ideas, all very good activity, etc. But I used to think at the time, okay, what's what's an effective trip to let's say New Hampshire, where the campaign would go early in the in the campaign? How does one how does one decide whether or not a trip to New Hampshire has been effective. Well, what's it doing? The trip is having sessions, basically, in which Jesse is speaking, and uh, um, maybe there is some kind of event going on, and there is an attempt to spread the political insights that Jackson undeniably had, and there's an attempt to, uh, uh, to move the audience, okay? What's the measure of effectiveness? Well, one answer might be the number of votes for Jesse later on when the primary is held in New Hampshire. Another answer might be, that's good, but more important is the number of people who, as a result of Jesse going through, Jesse Jackson going through New Hampshire, have become involved in a sustained way in creating more later, not just um, uh, visible response while he's there, but an ongoing response, an ongoing activism, and an ongoing commitment and development of awareness and organizing and organization. That, to me, is a different way of thinking about effectiveness. Same thing, there, there'll be demonstrations, and lots of people will think, well, the criteria of effectiveness is, did we shut down the place we were aiming to shut down? Did we um, uh, uh, assemble the number of people, or even more than the number of people, who we tried to assemble? Um, were the speeches correct? Um, did I like the speeches? I don't think these are the right criteria of effectiveness. I think the right criteria of effectiveness, again, is always after the event, after the gathering, after the organizing, what remains? And does what remain induce, propel, sustain further activity, growing activity? So if you look at the 60s, on the one hand, you can say an incredible upheaval of desire and of energy and of dissent. And you can say an incredible impact over a period of time on the consciousness of the country, the attitudes and values of the country, the commitments of the country. Of course, not the country isn't an entity, but on large parts of the population of the country. And that's true. But but consider that the amount of, of activity, the number of people, the sheer energy applied, and what's the definition of effectiveness? Well, with so much, the definition of effectiveness has to be, to what extent did it yield sustained commitment, belief, activism that grew over time? And by that criteria, I'm afraid my generation was not so successful. Oh, we did more than some others, I suppose you could say that, but that's not my criteria for success. I want to win. I want movements to actually win 
change. Not do good for the minute, not look good for the minute, not feel good for the minute. That's all nice. But ultimately what matters is over time continuing to grow and to develop and become more aware and, and, and committed. So let's go back to the articles and to the essays and to the books. I think the same thing holds. The criteria for success isn't how many copies a book sells or how many people's eyes run over the page of an article. It's just not. Those things might be necessary or at least desirable contributors to success. Yes, that's true. And so getting things out and getting things visible is important. But what makes a presentation of ideas, be it analysis or vision or strategy, a successful act is that that, that information enters people's minds and affects people's behavior. And that's what I'm not sure we're seeing. That's what worries me. I don't know what the solution to this is. I don't know what, what change can be made. I mean, we can think of some things. Maybe it would be good, going to the writing example, if there were more written, responsible, respectful debates between contending viewpoints. Maybe it would be good if there was some kind of continuous follow-up when there's a new idea. And maybe it would be good if not so much of our energy, of our of writer's energy, of publisher's energy and resources, went into replicating what already exists and repeating in multitudinous copies with different words the same points. Maybe it would be better if people maybe wrote a little bit less, but wrote things that were different, that were addressing topics that are under-addressed, that were treating issues that are not perpetually treated. I don't know what to say about why we make the choices we make. I just don't know. So let me leave that part of today just right there. Another thing that has been crossing my mind, troubling me, and maybe I could talk about, maybe it'll be of some value, I don't know. I should say, I don't know whether this approach to ruminations is, is worthy. I'm very skeptical of it, but I did ruminations one, and a lot of people thought it was really good. It's sort of depressing that not preparing, <laughs> not preparing, not even preconceiving, much less thinking through carefully, um, may, may be more appealing to people. I don't think because it's dumb. I just think because it feels more natural, perhaps. It feels more like somebody's talking to you or something like that. I don't know what the reason is. But anyway, people seem to like it. So I'm trying a second one. Again, effectiveness, of course, is not whether or not people like it. Effectiveness is going to be whether it has any impact. And how I'm going to know that, I don't know. But in any event. The second thing that troubles me, or, or another thing that's been on my mind recently, is what we might call inhabiting dead men's minds. By that I mean 
there's a tendency for people to put forth in their own thinking and to present and to validate themselves by referring to and summarizing and presenting over and over again dead men's thoughts. And I mean in particular people in the heritage of, of activism and of uh, revolutionary politics and the like. And oftentimes this is plagued even further. I mean, in the first place, it's plagued by what good does it do to elevate dead people instead of elevating live people, instead of paying attention to live people who can talk back and have a conversation and have a discussion and push things forward. What's the point of, of overwhelmingly instead uh, addressing the dead? You don't see it in other disciplines, right? Physicists don't write physics, physics pieces in which they're explicating and, and sort of uh, uh, admiring or debating with dead physicists. They interact with live, live partners in the project of pushing forward physical knowledge. And the same for other disciplines. But anyway, getting back to what we do, this came up because a friend of mine told me that he had some experiences of late inside left organizations, um, and, and one that surprised me greatly, DSA, where people were forming these reading groups around articles and essays and books by dead men and in particular by some really peculiar choices of dead men, Stalin even, Lenin and so on. And you sort of wonder, or I sort of wonder, how does this stuff have such resilience? I mean, honestly, it would be a longer discussion, but it's not because it is so original now. It is so provocative now. It is so insightful in ways that people are unaware of now. It really isn't that. I don't think it's that. I mean, and I'm not even going to the point where, where I would have to say things like, well, but it's wrong. You know, it's demonstrably wrong. There, there, are, there are various ways in which we have long since understood that certain things are lacking in insights. They, they are just, they, they fall short. They don't understand race, gender. They don't understand sexuality. They don't understand ecology. But even more so, as far as concern about them, they don't understand class and economy well enough. And that would be my concern. But nonetheless, the point is there are real concerns. The point is they are dead. The point is you can't have a discussion with them. You can't have a debate with them. The point is you're not elevating, when you elevate them, somebody who's not visible. You're elevating somebody who's already super visible. What is that accomplishing? So the question becomes, what's the resilience based on? Okay, now I know some people are going to tell me, look, the resilience, Michael, is based on the fact that it's so fucking brilliant. It's so smart. It's so right. It's so relevant. And I have to say... I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. I don't believe that Leninism, say, much less Stalinism, has some degree of resonance among 
let's say, young leftists nowadays, which I'm told it does. I'm told that young leftists are, are picking up the classics in order to, you know, become educated about, they're reading books that are a century and are a century and a half old in order to become adept at dealing with contemporary society, contemporary possibilities, contemporary vision. Now, I'm not saying those that what was done in those days had no relevance. Of course it did. I'm not saying that it wasn't in part correct. Marx is, you know, has all sorts of brilliant insights, of course. But is it really the case that that's where we have to look to try and understand today? Or is there something about what's going on that has more to do with, I don't know, we might call it identity. Latching on to some kind of a framework, a fully formed framework to get some legitimacy, to get some sense of identity and credibility and validity. It's the wrong way to get that. The right way to get that, I think, is to create ideas that are worthy now. And, and you know, the, the worst version of it is when you sort of encounter, you, you sort of have an interaction or somebody like myself has an interaction with somebody who's steeped in, say, the, the Marxist discipline. That's fine, right? There's lots there that's brilliant. But it continually feels like the issue at stake for lots and lots of people who are in that circuit, that broad circuit, is consonance with, consistency with, what was said back then, and if it isn't consistent with that, if it isn't consonant with that, it's wrong. It, and, it, and it must be stamped out even, um, but it's certainly wrong. And it may be wrong, but what isn't done is to say, well, let's see. It isn't consistent with what I read in such and such a volume that I think is quite insightful. Therefore, I suspect it may be wrong. So I will look at it. And I will try and show, without any reference to past documents, like a Bible, that it has to be consistent with, I will try to show why it's wrong, why it is that it mistakes current reality, or why it is that it posits a goal that's incorrect, or why it is that it has a strategic sense that is ill-conceived. No, the way that the argument occurs is, it's not consistent with whatever, right? The labor theory of value or, you know, the notion of the party from Bolshevik days or, you know, Mao's such and such and so on and so forth. That's not, that's not a way to argue honestly. It's not, it's not a way to develop one's approach to ideas honestly. You never hear that in other disciplines. You never hear somebody read a scientific essay, read a, for that matter, journalistic essay, if they're serious people, and say, well, that's inconsistent with, it's different than X, therefore it's wrong. They might say that's different from inconsistent with X, and that makes me think it's wrong, and here's why when I examine it, I come to the conclusion that indeed it is wrong. It's very different. I hate to harp on this, but hey, it's ruminations. 
Another thing that's very much on my mind, it's hard to not have it on my mind, is that I have a book coming out called No Bosses, A New Economy for a Better World. And actually, it follows with these, <laughs> maybe this rumination stuff does have a logical strain to it or, or thread to it. It does follow in a sense. You know, why write the book? Why write it the way I wrote it, etc., etc.? I'm not going to spend long on this, but the answer is consistent with what we've been saying. It's to try to offer ideas, formulations, conceptions that are effective. And insofar as I'm trying to do that, I have a, a task, I think. And I'm not sure every writer sees this. I'm not sure I always saw this. But I have a task. And the task is not only to write it as well as I can for the constituencies that might plausibly read it, clearly, accessibly, concisely, as best I can, not the greatest writer, but as best I can, right? So that's one responsibility. And of course, I have a responsibility that I think through what I'm writing, and I really believe that it's worthy, that it's valid, that, uh, you know, it, uh, it makes sense and it applies well. So that's another criteria. And then there's a third one. And the third one is, it doesn't do any good if nobody reads it. And more than that, it doesn't do any good if the only people who read it, read it in their reading room or their, you know, their bedroom or at the library, wherever they read it, and then never do anything about it. Never talk to anybody else about it. Never discuss it never explore it further. Now, of course, maybe it's not worthy of any of that, but then some other book, and I have to think it's worthy of that or I wouldn't have spent the time to write it. So thinking it's worthy of that, I have a responsibility to try and figure out how to promote it, how to distribute it in such a way that... I'm waiting for a plane to fly by now. So I have a responsibility to try and promoted to try and follow up on it in a way that yields that kind of discussion. And so what that has meant to me in the case of this book is that I'm trying to I'm trying to request and urge reviews. I'm trying to you know I I Noam did a uh, uh, forward or a preface I think the publisher calls it and so did Yanis Varoufakis. And I'm set up, uh, hopefully, to have an exchange, an extended exchange, a kind of debate with Yanis about his views of vision and my views of vision. And I'd be happy to do that with anybody. And I, I have to try as best I can to provoke attention. And that's not easy to do. First of all, it's not very comfortable. Right? It feels very self-serving, and it's, it's just sort of embarrassing, to be honest. It just doesn't feel good. But I feel like, so what, right? Again, the success is not feeling good. Success is not even number of sales. Success is not that I can read the book a year from now and say to myself, oh, geez, that's pretty smart. Nice job. This is not success. Success is, is it having an impact. And so that's my attitude toward this book that I'm reading. And speaking of books, I'm led to another, another rumination. I'm reading a book just now. It's not an overtly political book. It's called 
The Code Breaker. And this book is about Jennifer Dudna, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, and a number of other people, and the processes all around what's called CRISPR. I'm not even sure how to pronounce it. C-R-I-S-P-R. And this is a procedure, a biological procedure or biochemical procedure, uh, that has emerged in the past, I don't know, five, six years. And what this procedure is about, and it behooves us to understand some of these things, I think, and so I'll tell you just a little about it, and then you can consider whether you want to read more about it. It's about a process by which, in a lab, we can enter a cell, change a segment of DNA, and have the cell persist. And on the one hand, this can be useful in a sort of a non-controversial way, or at least a relatively non-controversial way. But the, the way that is more surprising and um, uh, concerning is that you can do this essentially to the earliest stages of a new child, of an embryo, of a um, even of an egg or a sperm cell. You can change the DNA, and in changing the DNA, in that sense, you're not only changing um, whatever it affects, we'll come back to that in a minute, you're not only changing whatever it affects in that particular being, in that child that grows up to be an adult, but you're also changing it in the, in the line of descendants, you're, act, you're literally changing the DNA. You're literally changing how natural selection works. You're introducing into natural selection human intervention. And human intervention, not just in the sense of, you know, taking out something that's nasty in one individual, but literally changing the, the genetic inheritance of of that individual's children and their children and their children and so on and so forth. So what can this be good for? Well, or what can this be used for better, less, less uh, value-laden? There are various diseases that owe to particular short strips of DNA. Sickle cell anemia is one. Some people think even Alzheimer's may prove to be one. Uh, there are, you know, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a doctor. There are a number of them, uh, crippling, deadly diseases, which are genetic, and in which one can imagine then, uh, and this is not science fiction, and this is not 50 years in the future. This is sort of being paused and slowed down, but it's imminent. And so one can imagine essentially removing from the human species sickle cell anemia, or removing from the human species various other genetic diseases. So that's one kind of use. Another kind of use is, insofar as you can discern, and we will be able to do this, insofar as you can discern that a stretch of DNA influences, say, height, or hair color even, or perhaps it will prove to be the case that you can say it about uh, some kind of intelligence, or perhaps it will be the case that you can say it about muscle mass. Actually, they've already done that. Then you can, in essence, decide some of the characteristics 
decide some of the attributes that your offspring will have and enact that choice. And then their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. So you can see that on the one hand, this book is an interesting discussion of some science. Um, it's not my favorite kind of science, but you know, it might be yours. And it is interesting, and you get a feeling for what these scientists are doing. It's very well written, and it's very well researched. And so you get a feeling for what these scientists are doing and how they're doing it. So that's one component, and what the science is, and what it's capable of. That's one component. Second component is you get a bird's eye view of the interactions of these scientists, these, these biochemists, and, 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 and their work. And you learn a lot about and it is pretty fascinating how the social organization of society and of science impacts their behavior. For instance, how the desire for prizes or the desire for uh, copyrights so as to make a fortune impacts the actual practice of the scientists. This is a rather disturbing part of the book, at least for me, although it can be corrected. And then there's discussion, and it's actually you know, quite, uh, it isn't, you know, it's not a leftist discussion, but it's a, uh, you know, so it's not informed by maybe all the sophistication that some of you would want to have present in such a discussion, but it's a very interesting discussion of the implications that this can have and of how it can unfold. And it also shows you the different views of the various scientists about it and their attitudes toward it. So all of this is quite interesting sort of intellectually interesting or curiosity interesting, but it's also socially interesting and relevant because it's coming. So I, I you know, insofar as I'm going to ruminate, I'll ruminate that this particular book may be worth people's time. Uh, so maybe you'll take a look at it. Okay, there was another topic that I had been thinking about recently, but it's unrelated to these, and so I think I'll leave it for the third rumination, assuming the responses to this one warrant having a third. It's called ghosting. It's the behavior we're in to a greater or lesser extent, that is, one can imagine it more or less and lasting more or less long and occurring for various reasons and so on, one person simply turns off another. Uh, doesn't say goodbye or good riddance or anything of that sort, but simply terminates um, and refuses to interact, refuses to, you know, to discuss it at all. Uh, and so this has become a, a sort of a widespread form of behavior, even in, in small ways. So, for instance, you write email and you don't get answers and nobody thinks there's anything wrong with that. Nobody thinks there's anything wrong with I don't know what to call it, incivility, um, either on a small or on a grand scale. So maybe we'll take that up next time. And that said, for now, until next time, or until next, next rumination, as far as the sequence is concerned, uh, this is Mike Albert signing off for Revolution Z.